Welcome back, OB-GYN Wino Podcast. If you're looking for my other podcast, guys, it's called the Holistic OBGYN. This is uh, a special podcast. This is for the birth workers, the midwives, the residents, the medical practitioners who wants to really be clear on what ACOG's guidelines are. I don't think ACOG is the worst thing in the world. Let me, let me be super clear. We have these guidelines. They have vetted out the biggest, hopefully the best done studies in order to help guide our clinical practice. But these are still guidelines. Despite what you think, when you go to medical school or you go to midwifery school or whatever, these congresses, these colleges, like the American College of Obstetric, uh, of, of <laughs> mouth, mouth uh, tongue twister there, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, they're here to provide us with some guidelines. This is not how to practice medicine. If it was that simple, you wouldn't have to be that smart to get into midwifery school and to get through midwifery school, or the same could be said for medical school or medical residency. These are guidelines. The practice of evidence-based medicine, as I always say, is not just looking at the data. That's where I think a lot of programs go astray. I won't mention any by name, but even a lot of doctors and nurses and whatnot. What's the evidence? Well, your evidence from the data is just one leg of the chair that is evidence-based medicine. You also have to take your own experience and your own skills into, into context. You have to take your client or patient's experience, values, beliefs, etc. You have to take all of that into account. And then when you counsel, you take all three of those legs and you help provide them with the best, I don't know, compilation of data and experiences and all that so that they can make an informed choice. So we've got another great topic here. I'm going through the practice guidelines every single week. There's a new one that comes out. And this is in order of how they've been updated, starting with the most recently updated. The first episode of the podcast was anemia and pregnancy. When they eventually update that, probably in a number of years, that'll get, you know, renovated and replaced with a new edition of the OB-GYN Owino podcast. That's what this is. That's what this is all about. Our topic today is always it's like something that a lot of people don't know a ton about including myself really but it's important that we know about it because venous thromboembolism is a is a big thing practice bulletin 232 is about the prevention of venous thromboembolism in gynecologic surgery and while you might be listening and thinking i don't do gynecologic surgery the principles of the prevention of deep vein thrombosis in the legs, pulmonary emboli, you know, the lung clots. This is relevant to everybody because when you become pregnant, you have this hypercoagulability. You have this venous stasis. We're going to get into Virch's triad. And um, we'll talk about how to think about thromboembolism. So this one was published back in July 2021. It's Practice Bulletin 232, if I haven't mentioned that. And, of course, we always pair a bottle of wine. 
This episode is paired with the Castello di Maletto Chianti Classico 2020 Vintage. It was delicious. You see a picture of it if you go to the show notes. By the way, the show notes are far more in-depth than what we're going to cover in this audio episode. So you can go to Patreon. We'll link it in the uh, podcast description. Wherever you listen to podcasts, you'll find a link there. Patreon. If you become a patron, five bucks a month, you get to also access all of the show notes, which have studies linked, additional insights, graphics, illustrations. It's really kind of like your study guide. When I started this whole podcast, this original podcast, the Yobi Gaino Wino, I was studying for my surgical boards. Now I'm through the boards, I'm board certified and all that stuff. And I'm revisiting them because that's what good practitioners do. You don't stop learning. You have to continue to revisit these topics. And that's why this is so valuable to me. As with every episode, we start with five pearls. First is most patients who die from PE do so within 30 minutes of the event. So prevention is key. That means that if you end up with a PE and we don't recognize it right away, shortness of breath, chest pain, all of that, you're probably going to die. That's why this is so important. And that's not just like, there's not some sort of opportunism there where it's like, hey, if you don't get this COVID vaccine, you're going to get grandpa sick. Like, it's not like that type of fear-mongering. These are very real things. I've diagnosed PEs and DVTs countless times. I don't even know, hundreds of times. And it's just a part of practicing medicine. If you're going to do this work, you have to be able to recognize these things. So prevention is key. Number two, if a patient is known to have factor V Leiden mutation or prothrombin gene mutation 20210A, they should be considered high risk and managed appropriately intra and postoperatively and in pregnancy. Number three, compression stockings, pneumatic compression devices, and pharmalo- pharmacologic prophylaxis are all safe and useful in preventing VTE. VTE is going to be the term we use because otherwise venous thromboembolism is a mouthful. Number four, Highest risk patients benefit most from a combined approach of mechanical or stocking prophylaxis combined with pharmacologic prophylaxis. And number five, platelet inhibitors should be stopped 14 days before spinal or epidural anesthesia. Those are things like NSAIDs, unfractionated heparin four to six hours before, and low molecular weight heparin, which is also known as Lovenox, 12 hours before. That's spinal or epidural anesthesia. So again, that is, that is relevant to you if you do birth work. So why do we care about this? Well, VTE occurs in 15 to 40% of gynecologic surgeries when you're not using thromboprophylaxis through one of these means we're talking about. So if you don't use it, that's great. You're, you, you can decline if you're a patient or you can, you know, um, counsel that a person, you know, you, we're here to support people. But if they, if your client were, you know, knew that up to 40% of gynecologic surgeries are complicated by this when we're not using prophylaxis, they might you know, be able to make a better decision. 50% of post-op VTE occur within 24 hours, and 75%, um, geez, sometimes as late as 10 days post-op. So um, we have to be thoughtful about this all the way until a couple weeks after, after we do this procedure. So that doesn't mean, hey, they went home post-op day one and we, we just move on and stop thinking about them. We have to always be thoughtful about this. We have to be thoughtful about what is their activity level? Do they have help at home? Are they going to be laying around in bed all day? That type of thing. Asymptomatic DVT. You remember, when you get a, a blood clot in your leg, usually a home and sign is positive. It's pain in the calf, especially with hyperflexion of the ankle. 
Um, you can get discoloring. You can get swelling of one leg versus the other. And if it forms and becomes, you know, progresses sufficiently, it can dislodge and move to the lungs, resulting in a pulmonary embolism. Um, yeah. So most patients who die from PE, that's the blood clot in the lung, do so within 30 minutes of the event. We mentioned that in our pearls. That's a key. So especially if a person is determined high risk, and we'll talk about, gosh, really the majority of this this bulletin is, is about identifying who's high risk. And then, of course, what do we do? But prevention is key. DV, DVT is diagnosed in 2 million Americans every year, and around 30% will die from resulting PE. That's bad news. Incidence of your first VT for all comers going into surgery is less than 1%. So that's good. It means we're doing a lot of surgery, and not everybody is getting VTE. Um, if you get a VTE, your risk of dying is 10 to 12%. It's lower in younger patients. It's higher in patients with cancer. So who's at risk? Let's revisit Virchow's triad. I kind of mentioned this, but you need endothelial damage. That's damage to the lining of the blood vessel. You need a hypercoagulable state. Some are hereditary, some are acquired. And then you need stasis. So if we were to break this down and you consider all of the independent risk factors, they're all going to put you in one of these three categories. And some people are going to have multiple categories here. Hospitalization and surgery are the two major risk factors for thrombosis with an odds ratio of 11 and 6, respectively. And just because you call out for surgery isn't an indication to screen for any sort of thrombophilia. The nature of VTE is all related to Virchow's triad. So what we tend generally do is a person has surgery and they're laying in bed for several days. That's what we're worried about. So while they're laying in bed, what can we do to prevent those clots from forming and moving to the lungs and killing our patients? There's a nine times higher risk of VTE in bed-bound or bed-rested patients, which is why early ambulation and whatnot is all critical. Even if you're older, even if you have pain, even if you have cancer, getting up and moving is actually important. So let's look at Virchow's triad again. Endothelial damage. What can cause this? Smoking can cause this. Hypertension can cause this. Um, that's dysfunction of the endothelium. The damage can also can can certainly take place as a in a response to surgery, catheters like PICC lines, and of course trauma. These hypercoagulable states, right, we know about this. Um, some people have hereditary tendencies to, to form blood clots, factor V Leiden, prothrombin, G2021OA, and protein CNS deficiency. The acquired hypercoagulable states include cancer, chemotherapy, um, if you're on um, hormone therapies, pregnancy, we know that one, obesity, all, all acquired. There's more here. I'm, just, I'm not reading everything. You have to go to the show notes to see it all. But the stasis we've already talked about, immobility. This, and, and if you have polythysemia, polycythemia, which is basically too many red blood cells around that can actually lead to endothelial injury. Um, so based on this, we can stratify people into a variety of different risk factors. And, and what you're going to see in table one, if you look at the show notes, is what is the risk of a symptomatic VTE? And then the second column is a Caprini score. We'll talk about that. And then you have to balance that with the risk of a major bleeding complication. We want you to be able to clot. We just don't want you to clot and throw up one of those big clots to the lungs. So there's this delicate balance, right? 
So let's talk about the Caprini score um, to, a risk, to assess risk of venous thromboembolism. This is provided in box one in the show notes. Um, this model, what I, what I did in the show notes was I, I linked the original publication that supported this model. And um, I'm going to go through the box generally. So what this is is a scoring system whereby you get one point for these things, two points for these things, three points for these things, five points for these things. The five point categories are all the things that we're thoughtful about. History of a stroke less than one month ago. Um, If you've had an elective arthroplasty, um, if you have a hip pelvic or leg fracture, and if you have an acute spinal cord injury, again, within the last month, those are all super high risk factors, meaning you get more points towards your Caprini, Caprini score. The um, other things that you can get scores for, you know, we can't go through all of these, but you get one point for being aged 41 to 60. You get two points for age 61 to 74, and you get three points for being 75 or older. You get three points alone if you um, are 75 or older. And if you go back to table one, your risk of a, a symptomatic VTE being high, which is around 6%, is associated with a Caprini risk, a Caprini score of five or greater. So if you are 75 or older, you already have three points towards that five. And that also puts you in the moderate category, meaning a roughly 3% risk of VTE. Remember, we said all comers, it's less than 1%. But if you're older, if you have cancer, if you're a smoker, the, the sort of history, you have a history of clots, that type of thing, that can all easily bump you into a higher risk category. You also get one point in this Caprini scoring system if it's a minor surgery, if your BMI is greater than 25, if you have swollen legs, if you have varicose veins, if you're pregnant or postpartum, um, any history of unexplained or recurrent pregnancy loss. You can imagine how a lot of those people would hit like multiples, and then you're already in the moderate or even the high risk category. So I encourage you to go to the show notes, look at the Caprini score. This is, again, a means to assist risk of symptomatic VTE. And then when you go to table one, you can see, okay, I have to balance the risk of symptomatic VTE with the two foremost columns, which are the reflect a risk of major bleeding complications. So if you're low risk of VTE, and even if you're high risk of major bleeding um, complication, Mechanical prophylaxis, preferably preferably with the intermittent pneumatic compression devices. That's like the ones where you have this big sleeve on the leg and like chambers individually fill with air in a sequential way. Gosh almighty. Sorry for the interruption there. I heard a very loud bang, so I went to check on my daughter. All right, if a person is of moderate risk for VTE, around 3%, that's a Caprini score of 3 to 4, we can use either chemoprophylaxis, meaning the uh, uh, heparin products, or we can use mechanical prophylaxis if the risk of major bleeding complication is is average, which is around 1%, and you have the option then of using mechanical prophylaxis until risk of bleeding diminishes if they're higher risk, and then you can add pharmacologic prophylaxis. If they're higher risk and average risk of major bleeding complications, you want to use pharmacologic prophylaxis plus mechanical prophylaxis. And the same that I said um, about the moderate risk category uh, applies here. So if they are at higher risk of bleeding, you could 
um, add on pharmacologic prophylaxis after that risk of bleeding diminishes. That's more of a concern at the high risk than the moderate risk, and so forth. So high risk cancer surgery is automatically going to put you in a higher risk of symptomatic VTE. And then of course you need to weigh average risk with high risk of bleeding. But in this case, you're naturally going to combine mechanical with chemoprophylaxis for both categories. So, you know, obviously there's a lot of clinical decision-making that goes into this. This is more than just an algorithm, the way that maybe people talk about it. It's, it's not that simple. It's not like your VBAC success calculator, which people misuse all the time. So a couple notes about this big fat box you find in the show notes. This is about the Caprini scoring system. The benefit of perioperative VTE chemoprophylaxis was only found among surgical patients with Caprini scores equal to or greater than seven. So really, we've, this is more nuanced, but after five, we have to really, really consider, man, are we going to be doing VTE prophylaxis like through heparin products before, during, and after the surgery? If so, if we're going to use the Caprini scoring, we need to have at least a score of seven because we have to worry about them um, you know, bleeding out during the surgery itself. Um, they also, you know, the authors of this study that developed this Caprini scoring system, Cronin et al., they clarify as a caution that, quote, this study selected the purest 13 of the nearly 100 clinical trials, and these results may not apply to all patient groups. So um, they also note that CIRMs like tamoxifen are associated with an increased risk of VTE, but there are no universally accepted guidelines as to whether they should be stopped for surgery. So there you go. Now, a, little, a couple notes on the specific hypercoagulable states that people talk so much about. We can't go through all of this. There is a beautiful table, table two, from the practice bulletin that's in the show notes. But what we're talking about here is factor V Leiden, the prothrombin gene mutation, G20210A, antiphospholipid antibodies, etc. Now, as you go down the list, protein C deficiency, protein S deficiency, antithrombin 3 deficiency, these are all like towards the end of the list. They're all way less than 1%, except for methylene tetrahydrofolate reductase um, homozygous carriers, which the prevalence for that is about 10% in the population. Um, in patients who present with thrombosis, about 25% of them are homozygous for the motherfucker gene. That's the MTHFR <laughs> gene. Um, you would only know if you're MTHFR homozygous if you got a DNA analysis. So... Um, all of that is to say that the majority of these are pretty, pretty low risk. Now, the only exception, the one I'll talk about here, is the factor V Leiden. You can be heterozygous, and about 5% of the population is heterozygous for factor V Leiden, and then um, homozygous. Uh, now, the homozygous are the ones that um, probably are going to be more of a concern. The issue is we're not totally sure what the prevalence um, is for patients who present with thrombosis. But if you're home, but heterozygous, um, factor people who are heterozygous for factor V Leiden, there's about a 20% prevalence in patients who present with thrombosis. So the way that we test for heterozygous is we do an activated protein C resistance assay. Homo homozygous, we need a DNA analysis. Um, you can test, you can do the DNA analysis in pregnancy. You cannot do it, uh, uh, the activated protein C resistance assay in pregnancy. Um, almost all of these conditions can be checked for during acute thrombosis with the exception of protein C and S deficiency and antithrombin 3 deficiency. Um, 
And if a person is on anticoagulant therapy, most of these conditions, apart from factor V Leiden, pro prothrombin gene mutation, and antiphospholipid antibody, can all be tested um, while, you know, they can all be screened for this while they're on anticoagulant therapy. Otherwise, they can't. So definitely check out the table in the show notes. Let's talk a little bit about um, a couple of these conditions just a little bit more specifically. So factor V Leiden is the most common, about 5% prevalence in the general population. About 20% of people diagnosed with VTE have this mutation. This um, condition results in resistance to protein C, hence the assay that we use in order to diagnose it. But again, the homozygous, and really I would recommend heterozygous or homozygous be diagnosed by DNA analysis because there's less room for error there. Um, if you recall, protein C works as an anticoagulant by regulating the activity of factor 8A and factor 5A in the clotting cascade. So um, I, think it's always, I think it's just always important to just remember that we have um, some really, there's some great physiology behind this in order to help guide our clinical decision making. The heterozygous, um, heterozygotes have a 3 to 8 times higher risk over baseline the homozygotes have a 50 to 80 times increased risk. Fortunately, the homozygotes are, are far less than 5% of the, the, the population, but it's definitely something that we need to be thoughtful about. Um, prevalence of the homozygotes for factor V Leiden, are, uh, it's about 0.02% or so. Prothrombin gene mutation, 20210A. I think I have that right, yeah. That's a mouthful as well. This is the second most common, 2 to 3% prevalence, prevalence in the general population, and around 6% of people diagnosed with VTE will be found to have this gene mutation. Um, what's special about this mutation is, is that it results in abnormally high levels of prothrombin. There's a about a three-time increased risk of VTE above baseline, and... Um, as I've mentioned, it's diagnosed by activated protein C uh, resistance assay. Um, what else do I have to say about that? You know what? I don't think that's right. <laughs> it's diagnosed by DNA analysis, but um, you could... No, you're not going to diagnose it by that. That's out of place. Sorry for that, guys. Um, antithrombin 3, protein C, and protein S deficiencies, these are all natural anticoagulants, so if you have a deficiency naturally, you're going to have excess coagulation. Um, these are much more rare, but they should still be considered as a part of your workup if a patient has a strong family or personal history of VTE, but are negative for factor V Leiden and the prothrombin uh, gene mutation. Heterozygotes of any of these three have a 10 times increased risk of VTE above baseline. This is why this is so important. That's a 10 times increased risk. That's amazing. And homozygotes usually have severe thrombotic events early in infancy. So you generally know if you have a if you're homozygous for this. And if you've survived, you know, your infancy, you probably aren't homozygous. Um, Hyperhomocystinemia. This can result from either genetic or acquired conditions. Uh, you know, I'll start by saying we're not exactly sure about this one. Um, we don't know if it's causative or if it's merely a marker of VTE. But deficiencies in folate, vitamin B6, and vitamin B12 can also cause hyperhomocystinemia. This is the one that's related to some variant of the methylene tetrahydrofolate reductase variant, the motherfucker gene. So when that gene is mutated to any degree, you may find an elevated homocysteine. And sometimes the elevated homocysteine should lead you to check through DNA analysis for the MTHFR 
um, gene mutation, one variant of that. And then of course, antiphospholipid syndrome. This is an acquired thrombophilia. Thrombo rel relates to blood clots. Philia means uh, a tendency to do that. They love making blood clots. <laughs> Philia. Hydrophilia, loving water. 50% of patients with lupus, systemic lupus erythematous, test positive for antiphospholipid antibodies. Um, generally, this is checked for um, through anticardiolipin um, antibodies, lupus anticoagulant. The, um, the latter, anti lupus anticoagulant, is more relevant because it detects beta-2 glycoprotein 1 antibodies, which correlates closely with thromboembolic complications and pregnancy morbidity. So this is when we have recurrent pregnancy losses. These are the types of you know, considerations we should be taking. It is reasonable to offer testing for any patient with VTE, SLE, recurrent pregnancy loss, early or severe preeclampsia, or thrombocytopenia. Check them for antiphospholipid syndrome. All right. Let's get into prevention. So as I've mentioned, the risk of thrombosis, clotting, must be weighted against the risks of bleeding post-op, right? If you've got one of those patients in the operating room who just tends to have bloody incisions, like it's just, you're just catching bleeders all the time, and you throw them on a medication immediately after surgery that disables their already limited ability to clot, you may end up with an internal bleeding issue requiring you to go back into the operating room and, and replace a whole bunch of clotting factors. So this is a problem. 50% of patients I've mentioned, oops, excuse me, um, early ambulation, as soon as they come out of the operating room, getting them up and walking and eating and drinking and all of that, raising their feet and legs, these are universal things. This is not a question, it's not an opinion. Get them out of bed. It's gonna help them with pain management. It's gonna help get their bowels going again. This is critical stuff. When you're considering the risk factors for major bleeding complications, consider some of the things that may contribute to this. Active bleeding, acute stroke, was it a complex surgery requiring you to tear a whole bunch of stuff apart and put it back together? Um, uh, do they have an untreated bleeding disorder already? Uh, have they recently had a lumbar puncture? Right? We don't want to have them, you know, a lumbar puncture, an epidural, spinal anesthesia. Um, we don't want them to bleed into that space. They get this tremendous headache, and then we have to do a blood patch and all that. Do they have malignancy? Do they have severe renal or hepatic failure? You can tell all of these things actually can make you also at risk for thrombosis. This is why your clinical decision-making powers are so critical here. So critical, guys. Um, I won't read the rest of that, but that's all in box two, risk factors for major bleeding complications in the show notes on Patreon. So what can we do? Graduated compression stockings. These are the kind of the things that um, diabetics wear. It does re reduce venous stasis in the calves, and it actually reduces risk of DVT by about 50%. But it's even better when combined with other methods, like early ambulation, raising the feet. The, the, the pros of this are they're low cost, they're simple. People generally like them. The pneumatic compression devices, like the SCDs that we use in uh, the PACU and in postpartum, also great. They work the same way as the graduated stockings. Um, only now they have these little air chambers, right? And the, sequentially, those chair, air chambers are going to be inflated and then deflated, inflated and deflated to push the blood from the lower extremities back to the heart. This has been found to be just as effective as heparin products when used during and after major gynecologic surgery. 
with a star, there's an asterisk there, right? If they're in the super high risk, then we have to consider would the addition of heparin to this make it even better? The answer is usually yes if you're if you're you know pondering that for your particular patient. Um, in patients with malignancy, studies have shown a three times decreased risk of VTE if the SCDs are used for five days following surgery. That alone is enough reason for us to be putting in this on every person with a major gynecologic surgery, especially if there's malignancy involved. The downside to these things is people tend to hate them <laughs> unless they're still in like that post, uh, post-surgery recovery state and they're like not really with it. They really don't like having these things on. I imagine they'd be very uncomfortable and very hard to sleep. Um, so getting them up and walking and intermittently using these things when they're laying in bed is probably the best, probably the best bet. The next option is low-dose unfractionated heparin. So compared with placebo or no prophylaxis, unfractionated heparin at 5,000 units administered two hours prior to major general surgery and every eight hours after surgery reduced fatal PE by two-thirds. Bam. There's a similar benefit for patients undergoing surgery for GYN cancer. This is great. Um, this this medication uh, uh, is just fine for people with renal insufficiency. Um if you have a person going through GYN surgery for benign indications, Q12 hour dosing post-op is fine, not the Q8. Um, that is really for the biggest, most complex surgeries or the malignant cases. One benefit of this low-dose unfractionated heparin to be, you know, in contrast to the Lovenox, that's the low molecular weight, which we'll talk about, is that it's far cheaper. Um, You're probably wondering, does this increase the risk of hematoma? Yes, but it's probably not a significant, clini clinically significant um, consideration um, given the tremendous benefit to the decreased risk of VTE. If you use this for longer than four days post-op, you should monitor for heparin-induced thrombocytopenia, which affects up to 5% of patients. We'll talk about this in a second. Um, combined with the graduated compression stockings, you're going to see a four times decreased risk over unfractionated heparin alone. So um, there's a lot of pros here, including the ability to rapidly reverse heparin, this unfractionated heparin with a, a substance called protamine sulfate. Now, low molecular weight heparin is a slightly different story. So what we're talking about here is um, a medication that can use, it needs to only be used once daily, but that also makes it more expensive. There's more activity against factor 10A and less activation of antithrombin than unfractionated heparin, and that's important. Um, we get less heparin-induced thrombocytopenia here, maybe around 1%. So treatment with this medication four weeks post-op has been shown to reduce the risk of fatal, fatal um, PE by about two-thirds, about 60%, compared to only one week of therapy, without increasing the risk for severe post-op bleeding or thrombocytopenia. Plus, it can be reversed quickly. So, um, given that we're worried about uh, heparin-induced thrombocytopenia in long-term courses with the unfractionated heparin, and they would have to give, them, give it to themselves two to three times per day, for the highest-risk patients, that means you know, maybe they're greater than 60, they've got malignancy, they have a history of a VTE, or this is like a prolonged, complicated surgery, prolonged bed rest period, you may want to consider a longer course of therapy, maybe up to six weeks. Also, bear in mind that if the BMI is greater than 40 or their weight is over 100 kilograms, higher doses might, re might, might be required, um, like 40 milligrams twice daily 
um, or 7,500, that would be for the low molecular weight heparin, or um, 7,500 twice or three times a day of the unfractionated heparin versus the 7,500. So just, just something to bear in mind. Um, so fundaparinox is another medication. This is not low molecular weight heparin. It's an indirect factor 10A inhibitor. It's administered subcutaneously, and it's been studied for VTE prophylaxis and abdominal surgery in patients undergoing orthopedic surgery. So not necessarily GYN surgery, but there is some promise here through some of the data that's coming through. If um, a person is high, at high risk of VTE, and both low molecular weight heparin and low-dose unfractionated heparin are contraindicated or not available, um, or maybe there's just a really high risk of major bleeding, fondaparinox or mechanical prophylaxis, uh, the, the mechanical prophylaxis with the sequential devices, um, or both, is recommended. As always, if your risks of VTE and bleeding are both high, wait until bleeding risks are diminished before starting fundaparinox. For the gynecologic surgery patients at risk of VTE and um, also at risk of major bleeding contra contraindications, um, the same applies for now, <laughs> until we find out more. Like I said, this has really been studied mostly in the general surgery and orthopedic surgery world. Um, they did do a randomized trial, and fundaparinox uh, was found to have equivalent e efficacy compared with low molecular weight heparin in patients undergoing major abdominal surgery without any increased risk in non-fatal major bleeding complications, leading ACOG at least to say, hey, it's a reasonable option if the others aren't on the table. There are also um, direct oral anticoagulants. This is a newer class of anticoagulants that include direct um, factor 10A inhibitors. Um, remember, fundaparinox was an indirect factor 10A inhibitor. So these are like the rivaroxaban and apixaban, um, as well as direct thrombin inhibitors like dabigatran. <laughs> I haven't said these words for a while. Um, these are nice because they have a rapid onset of clinical activity and a rapid rate of clearance when stopped. So they don't require any routine laboratory monitoring. Um, they've been found to be equivalent or even superior in efficacy to low molecular weight heparin for the prevention of ETE in orthopedic surgery patients. But again, we haven't, um, we don't have a ton of studies. There have been some studies with GYN oncology patients for extended duration prophylaxis. There hasn't been any, you know, finding of, of any clinically significant bleeding or in the rate of ETE when compared with some of these other agents. Now, granted, those were secondary outcomes, so they may have not been powered necessarily to show that, but for now, it seems like it, it might be good. Um, they seem to be really well tolerated by patients. Uh, we're not totally sure because we haven't studied it about uh, the cost efficacy, but again, it's another option to consider if a lot of these other options aren't on the table. So what about um, anticoagulation and benign minimally invasive GYN surgery? It's probably no benefit to use some of these anticoagulation medications, but you need to consider all the risk factors, including all the things we've talked about. Uh, one thing we haven't mentioned is operating time. Um, did they bleed a lot during the surgery? Was it a long surgery? Was it a complicated surgery? Those are all things that may be associated with an increased risk of VTE, so consider that. And the next big question is, should we screen for heparin-induced thrombocytopenia? Well, there's this great website I've linked it in the show notes called Choosing Wisely, and they suggest that we only screen if they have a four T's score of four or greater. The four T's are the presence of thrombocytopenia, the timelet of platelet count drop, the presence of thrombosis, and, f and four other causes of thrombocytopenia have been ruled out. So what I've put there is a table in the show notes, a table showing you the four T's category. 
That's the four things I just mentioned. And then a point system. So just like with the Caprini score, you just add up the likelihood that this is due to heparin inducing the thrombocytopenia and not other issues. If you've ruled out all of the other issues, um, then you know you really have to you have to kind of consider this. Um, you know what we generally will say is that you're more likely to see a rapid decrease of the platelets with at, at around four to, or five to ten days or so um, of greater than fifty percent. If the if this thrombocytopenia is due to heparin, um, so the things that get you more points in this scoring system that might lead you down the path of working up or even treating for heparin-induced thrombocytopenia are platelets fall by at least fifty percent, clear onset days five to ten. If there's a new thrombosis, which is kind of interesting, um, there's a couple other things there like skin necrosis and whatnot. Did they receive an unfractionated heparin bolus at some point, right? We can't have thrombo heparin-induced thrombocytopenia if they didn't get heparin. And if there's no other possible causes of thrombocytopenia, then you're going to get the maximum score. And then you're going to go that direction. You just have to go with what, you, with what you've got. Choosing Wisely is a great website for checking out all sorts of things about how to you know, manage some of these nuances. Anesthesia considerations are always a really um, big question for me, actually. So, regional anesthesia carries a 50% reduced risk of VTE over general anesthesia. That's a spinal or epidural has a lower risk of VTE than general. But spinal or epidural anesthesia is also challenged by the use of low molecular weight heparin. There is an increased risk of spinal hematoma, especially if the patient is using multiple antithrombotic agents, or in the presence of spinal or anatomic abnormalities. That could include... Um, underlying coagulopathy, repeat needle insertion, all that type of stuff. So the reason we're worried about low molecular weight heparin is it's not easily reversed. It has a longer half-life than the fraction, unfractionated heparin. Um, if, uh, so, so if a person's on a platelet inhibitor like an NSAID, you should stop at 14 days, 14 days before you think you're going to get a spinal or epidural. The unfractionated heparin stop at four to six hours before, and the low molecular weight heparin has to, has to be stopped, ideally 12 hours before. Sometimes that's a little bit hard if we're talking about pregnancy, but this, this practice bulletin does focus on gynecologic surgery. If you have a catheter in place, either, either a combined spinal epidural or an epidural catheter, you should be removing that at the nadir, meaning at the very, very end of the dose uh, of the interval before the next dose is due. So let's say that you gave a dose of whatever, the next dose of, of heparin or low molecular weight heparin, um, sorry, not low, no, low molecular weight, but unfractionated heparin. Wait until the next dose is due and then remove it right before that. You don't have to wait if you're using low molecular weight heparin, which I think is nice. It's probably, probably at least in part due to its pharmacology and its sort of timing to onset. How long should I wait post-op to begin pro pharmacologic thromboprophylaxis? Wait at least 6 to 12 hours. If you, if you wait less than 6 hours, you're going to increase risk of post-op bleeding more than 12 hours. Um, you may de decrease the benefit. You may actually miss your window there to prevent a catastrophic bleed. Um, 
how long should I keep them on pharmacologic prophylaxis? At minimum four weeks, um, especially if they're higher risk, I would probably push that to six weeks if they are especially high risk. Like my GYN on patients, the older, you know, uterine sarcoma patients probably go at least six weeks. Practice bulletin specifically says 28 days. I'd say go longer. Um, SCDs are also great and should be a part of the plan. I'm going to write that in my notes right now. So what if, our, what if your patient's on COCs or hormone replacement therapy before the surgery? There is no reason to stop if the patient's going to be ambulatory immediately post-op. Let's say that they're taking um, their birth control for, you know, and now they're going in for surgery. You have to, you know, weigh the increased risk of VTE with continuation of the COC against the risk of undesired pregnancy if you stop it. So if you are planning to stop these agents in order to restore clotting to its baseline, you have to stop them four to six weeks before. Are they going to get pregnant in the meantime? That's what we're talking about here. The Women's Health Initiative also looked at estrogen plus progesterone um, versus estrogen alone, and they found that the combination HRT increased the risk of veno throm uh, venous thrombosis more than estrogen alone. There are also, just to finish this off, some herbs and supplements that can interfere with anticoagulant therapy. There's a whole, excuse me, a whole list in the show notes, including Coenzyme Q10, cranberry juice, um, Dong Kwai, fenugreek, garlic, ginger, ginkgo, ginseng, glucosamine, chondroitin, grapefruit juice, green tea, melatonin, omega-3, St. John's wort, all of these things are oftentimes a part of my practice because I have a lot of people who come to me for herbal and otherwise natural remedies, um, and I work with a lot of Chinese practitioners. So if you're the practitioner, make sure you get the full list. Make sure that there isn't a change in the liver's metabolism of these various anticoagulant agents in order to make them less or more effective. Um, these are all important considerations. You're a, you're a practitioner. You're a doctor. You're a midwife. You are a you know, healthcare professional in some other regard, a chiropractor, something like that, Chinese medicine practitioner, you know, I'm trying to think of all the varieties of people that may be listening to this. You have to be very, very thoughtful and critical of all of this stuff. These are guidelines. And ultimately, you're the one who's caring for this person. There's not a protocol in the world that can replace you and your incredibly big, beautiful brain. So that concludes this one. It was a little bit longer than some of our others, but there's a lot to consider with venous thromboembolism. I hope you guys enjoyed. We'll be back next week with another awesome topic. In the meantime, do no harm, take no shit. Visit my Patreon page if you want to see the show notes. There's plenty I wasn't able to cover here because I didn't want to make it too long, but I will see you guys next week. Enjoy.